the average shooting time on the World Cup, which means the time from when you arrive on your shooting mat to when you depart. So you're arriving on your mat, you're taking your rifle off, getting in position, loading it, shooting five targets, and leaving. The average time is about 30 seconds. To the Training Edge podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Newkirk. To start a podcast within sport, I knew would be to take on a lot of different worlds. This was also something that really excited me. I spent the last 10 plus years in the sport of cycling, either within a coaching athletes of all types or pursuing my own goals within professional cycling. When you spend a good deal of time in a world of one discipline, you can find yourself stuck in a pattern. And one of the big ways I found to step out of that pattern is to look at other sports and how athletes pursue perfection in those sports. This leads me to today's guest, Claire Egan. Claire is an Olympian biathlete from Maine who attended the 2018 Winter Olympic Games. Claire is a four-time World Championship team member and placed third in the Mass Start final in the World Cup in Oslo, Norway. Claire also speaks five languages and was elected in 2018 to chair the International Biathlon Union Athletes Committee. So she is a pretty remarkable person, both in and out of sport. I asked her on the podcast to talk about technicality of sport and the ability of an athlete to become a specialist and what that means in particular for biathlon. Biathlon is the combination of skiing and shooting and has been a sport that has always captivated me. We cover a variety of things and it was just an absolute honor to chat with her about the world of biathlon. Sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Claire Egan. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today and excited to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I'm super excited, ecstatic to have you on the podcast. I started the podcast with the intent of, you know, tapping into all sorts of sports, even if they're outside of my background. Uh, The goal was to learn and then share knowledge across sports, different athletes, and just see how we can kind of progress each other. Um, so to start biathlon, if you had to define biathlon, what would it be? Biathlon is a winter Olympic sport that combines cross country skiing and target shooting. Do you want me to go into more detail or is that a, no, I think that's great. No, that's good. Um, how about on, let's go with more on like the emotional side. What does it mean to you? outside of just the definition what does it mean to you oh um getting getting deep (laughs) yeah well at this point it's been my job for the last five years so it's not just a sport or a hobby but it's actually um what i've been doing full-time i guess in that sense it's a career um i think it's one of the most emotionally and psychologically taxing sports but that also makes it one of the most exciting sports both to do and to watch yeah agreed i think what always fascinated me about the biathlon world is compared to cycling you know cycling is actually a really horrible uh spectator friendly sport um (laughs) so 
you know, biathlon, it, it really does. It's a very exciting sport depend like across the board. Um, and it kind of compares in a way to track cycling, but track cycling is a lot more boring in my opinion. Um, okay. Well, thanks for answering that. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to start with like a little bit of just what it, the sport kind of means to you uh, before we dive into our topic. Okay. The topic that I chose for us today is technicality of sport. Um, and the definition of technicality is a detail meaningful only to a specialist. So you are obviously very much a specialist. Um, but within the cycling world, uh, you know, we tend to go pretty far into it. Uh, professional athletes will look at CDA, they'll look at aerodynamics, they'll look at rolling resistance, um, muscle activation within a certain bike position. Um, but from what I can understand, skiing um, and biathlon have a, a lot of their own version of that. Um, and do you, do you agree with that? Let's start with that. Yes. I, I mean, first of all, my background really is as a runner. That's the sport I started in um, in middle school. And then I did cross country skiing and just going from running to cross country skiing, the leap in, um, equipment and, and technical specifications was massive. And then when you, when you add the shooting component, you're adding a second sport and it's a completely technical sport. So I, I really think Biathlon is probably one of the most technical sports out there, combining two already technical disciplines. Do you think that goes across the board? So, you know, when you first get into the sport, is the, uh, the tech, you mentioned the, the kind of that leap. So you think the hurdle to get into biathlon is a, is a difficult one? Um, I mean, certainly there is more equipment. So if running is the most basic, you know, you really just need a pair of shoes, shoes. and yeah. some people don't even use those. Um, certainly in skiing and, and in biathlon, you need skis, poles, boots, and a rifle. And those things can all be expensive and they certainly require a lot of, um, a lot of coaching and, and learning. So it is harder to, to learn the sport, I suppose. Um, but if you're lucky and you live close to a place where there is a shooting range or there are skiing trails, then, um, you know, in some places there's really great access. Uh, so it just really depends on where you are. Hmm. You mentioned that you have a background in skiing, but you didn't mention that you have a background in shooting. So how did you, how did you get into that side of the sport? Right. I had no, zero background in shooting. I had never shot any kind of weapon and, and really I'm not interested in shooting any other kind of weapon besides my biathlon rifle. Um, but I got into it basically because I was a fast cross-country skier and in the U.S. cross-country skiing is a lot bigger than biathlon and so the national biathlon team is always looking for fast cross-country skiers who may be interested in learning something new and having a different challenge. Um, that's not true in every country and in many places in Europe biathlon is actually uh, bigger than cross-country skiing so you end up with athletes who went the other way you know they, they grew up doing biathlon and then they they didn't like the shooting part or they weren't good at it or whatever and so they just did skiing but um, my experience which is what many American athletes um, do is start as a skier and kind of get recruited into 
biathlon. So um, I was 26 when I started shooting for the first time, which is ancient relative to most of my European competitors. But um, it is something that you can learn, of course. Um, it I still think it takes 10 years to become world class at it, just probably like anything. Um, but I guess the thing with biathlon is that you can, in the first year, um, hit your targets. And the thing is that maybe you just are, you'll probably be very inconsistent. So maybe you have one time in the whole year where you hit all your targets. Um, but if you do that and you're a fast skier, you can have a great race. And then as you improve, then you can become consistent and, um, and have really great results. So, you know, just like with bowling or shooting a free throw or putting, even if you're a beginner, you might get that putt or hit the basket or whatever. Um, and in shooting, that's the, how it works as well. You might hit all your targets on the, in the first year. Um, but you'll, it's very unlikely that you'll be consistent. So, um, that's been my, my path over the last five or six years has been, um, trying to improve my base level skill and, um, increase my consistency so that I can be hitting my targets all the time and not just once per year. <laughs> hmm. So on the like training side of that then to, so kind of with the concept of pursuing that specialist status and mm -hmm. trying to I guess, get the point of your shooting to be on par with your skiing. Do you slant percentage wise of focus towards your uh, shooting or is it still kind of even in that oh, regard? That's an interesting question. Um, basically because the time, there's so many hours in a day that are required to train for cross country skiing that you don't really have time to train more for shooting than for skiing. I mean, skiing, cross-country skiing is similar to cycling, um, you know, distance cycling, where you're spending hours and hours per day. I mean, I, I guess a typical day in the summer for me when I'm doing my biggest volume is um, two and a half hours in the morning and another hour and a half in the afternoon, something like that, of the physical training. Um, so if you're doing four hours of physical training it you you can't also do four or five hours of shooting yeah, it's just not on. possible um <laughs> yeah so the overall time i spend shooting is less in a given year i usually spend between 650 to 700 hours per year of physical training and about 200 wow. hours of shooting training um so it is it's much less but I have, um, I would say, I, I would, I would say I've prioritized my shooting at various points. Um, and maybe that just, it has, it's, it doesn't mean that I spend more time doing it, but if I'm tired or if I'm crunched for time instead of, and something has to be eliminated, the, the one hour of jogging gets eliminated and the one hour of shooting is maintained. That's kept. Do you shoot, yeah. this is, do you shoot, um, separately from skiing or are they always coupled? They're not always coupled. So, hmm. um, if you, 
imagine um, cycling training, you probably start by building up your aerobic base and then maybe you increase your intensity as you um, get closer to competition. Is that what you do? Yes. Something yep. like that. Okay. Exactly. So that's what exactly. we do in cross country skiing as well. And really, one of the interesting things about shooting is that it really mirrors physical training. Um, you start with base shooting, just like you would start with base aerobic training. And base shooting, when, when, what I mean when I say that is just um, shooting on its own, not combined with any physical activity. Um, it's, it's basics, right? So it's working on your position. We shoot both prone and standing. Um, our rifles and specifically the stock, which is the part that you hold, um, is very customizable. So every spring, um, when we start our training season, we might be making changes to the stock to make it easier to hold or easier to balance. Hmm. Um, and we work on details, um, like the trigger squeeze or, recoil control those kinds of things you might identify that that need improvement um, and then as the as we get closer to competition we start adding um, we start combining physical training with shooting pretty early on probably if we start training in may we add physical training starting in june but it would be only at low intensity and then um, we sort of build from there till the point where in October we're doing really hard intervals with shooting. Um, hmm. and, and we do that certainly uh, even earlier than, than October. But ba that's the basic progression is that you start with the two activities separated and then by the time you're doing your last preparations, everything is always combined. That's super cool. I've, I have no idea. So that it's almost – so the, my last podcast was actually with a, a bike fitter. So it's mm -hmm. almost like a, a, it's similar to getting a bike fit kind of at the early part of your yeah, season. Yeah, so definitely. Um, rifle fitting, and we call it rifle fitting. Cool. Um, and it's very, I mean, it's customizable. Most stocks are customizable, and then people are are also, like, making their own parts, you know. So it's, no it's in, infinitely <laughs> customizable, um, which some people love and I am on the other end of the spectrum where I can really? <laughs> hate doing those projects. Um, but it's really important to have the perfect fit. Um, yeah. and, and one point I'll just touch on too that is perhaps not intuitive is in the same way that you have to, um, you know, build your, build your cycling volume and then have recovery time shooting works the exact same way so you can train and train and train and work on some detail and repeat and repeat and you um you get exhausted mentally and then you have to recover and sometimes you need you know you need to take several days off from shooting and then come back to it and um so we have sort of a periodized shooting plan in the same way that a cyclist probably has a periodized training plan a training plan wow yeah so within I guess neurologically then that fatigue I would imagine that's very different um, than obviously physical fatigue from mm -hmm. um, training how do you notice that you're tired <laughs> mentally from shooting um 
Well, usually your results start <laughs> getting worse. <laughs> Going down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shooting okay. in biathlon is completely black and white, literally. So our targets are black circles. Um, the cir that we shoot at 50 meters and the prone, they're actually different sized targets for prone and standing. Our prone target, um, that's when we're lying on our stomachs and shooting, that is about the size of an Oreo. And the target size for when we're standing is closer to a CD. And wow. um, when you hit it, it turns white. So um, that's, you start to see a lot more black targets and less white targets. <laughs> or, uh, okay. um, yeah, and, and sometimes, yeah, you can just kind of get into these funks and you realize, okay, yeah. I need a break, you know, and when you're, sometimes your body's, maybe if you're doing physical training, you kind of realize, okay, my body's not responding. I'm trying to go fast right now and it is not working. And I've had the same experience with shooting where, okay, I'm, I'm really, I, I think I'm focusing on this, but it is not working. And that's when, you know, you need to just stop and take a break. Wow. What, so which do you prefer? I would imagine the standing is, uh, sorry, between the two, uh, shooting mm -hmm. positions. I would imagine the standing is harder, correct? Yeah, it is harder. That's why the target is bigger, but, Larger. um, yeah. with the bigger target, it's, you know, the idea is that it, sort of makes equalizes it a similar maybe. yeah equalizes it a bit yeah. but but overall um the average world cup biathletes prone shooting percentage is a bit higher than the average standing um percentage but that's actually it's not true for every athlete there are some athletes for whom it's the opposite but just the overall average um for all athletes in prone is a little bit higher for me that is certainly the case i'm much better in prone than standing um it's something I've really had to work on with standing. Um, this past year, I was one of the top prone shooters in the world. Cool. And in standing, that's not the case for me yet, but <laughs> I'm I'm improving every year. Um, I think part of what's hard for me is I have a really long torso. And in standing, it's a little bit hard to explain without an image, but um, we stick our hip out and basically plant our elbow on our hip and hold the rifle that way. Sort of use our hip as a pedestal to hold the rifle up in standing. Okay. Um, and you can, you know, look up images of biathlon, but I feel like for me, I'm a sort of tall, slender person with a long torso, and there's just a lot of movement there between like my sh my elbow and my hip and my shoulder. And someone who's more compact, maybe has a more more natural position. Like I have to stick my hip way out to touch my elbow to my hip bone. Huh. Um, and some people don't have to stick their hip out at all. They can just pl place their elbow, and it goes right on their hip. So I don't know. I've um, I've just had a hard time um, finding that stability, um, but you know I'm also relatively new, even though I'm old in my sport. Um, you know, by age I'm 32, but I am I've been doing it for a lot less time than most of my European competitors. So there's always room for improvement. Of course, that's when you have more to desire for or shoot for. So it's mm -hmm. good in sport.
Yeah. Um, yeah. So we chatted about periodization within shooting, which is mm -hmm. fascinating. But what about, um, so obviously within skiing, you're coming into these targets and you're coming into the two positions um, redlined for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to talk to you about uh, training of kind of breathing and calming mm -hmm. down and getting focused and getting that prep. How does, how do you train for something like that? And then what are, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, well, so a, a lot of people who have some familiarity with, with biathlon will ask me, oh, that's, how do you get your heart rate down so fast? And the answer of course, is that we don't, I mean, yeah, we're not, we're not, cool. yeah, that would be cool, but, um, <laughs> we're not superhuman. So we're coming in, yeah, at, at our race pace. Um, and I think, you know, back in the day, back in the old days, I think the, I think athletes took a lot longer on the shooting range and maybe they really did bring their heart rate and their breathing down. But um, nowadays, the average shooting time on the World Cup, which means the time from when you arrive on your shooting mat to when you depart. So you're arriving on your mat, you're taking your rifle off, getting in position, loading it, shooting five targets, and leaving. The average time is about 30 seconds. It wow. might even be under. It seems like it's going down all the time. And there are... Um, some of the top shooters are shooting close to 20 seconds. Um, so you don't really have time to, you know, totally calm down. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, really what we have to do is just get used to it. And that means doing a lot of intervals with shooting. Of course, you can't do that every day um, because you have to take easy days and rest. And so... We find other ways to um, sort of replicate that challenge, whether it's um, standing on something uneven, like a, um, some of those tools you see in a physical therapy room or a, in, a, in, a, in a gym, you know, that may be a, like a squishy box or a mm -hmm. not quite a, a um, physio ball, but some kind of mat or like a rolled up mat. Sometimes we create balance challenges for ourselves like that, which cool. might give you a little bit of a shaky feeling or um, just make it harder for you to get on target. Or we'll do, sometimes we'll pair strength with shooting so you know it's not a hard interval but if you do a bunch of push-ups and then try to shoot it's pretty much it's a very close replication of how you might yeah. feel um <laughs> when you come in in the middle of the race um and so those are some of the physical things we do to prepare um but like you touched on the sort of the mental preparation and calming down not only physically but mentally is really important um for me, coming from running and cross-country skiing, that was one of my biggest challenges when I first started doing Bathon um, because you may have experienced in a cycling race that sort of the, the sooner you can just shut your mind off, the better. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't want to be thinking about how much it hurts or whatever. You just go, you know. You want to zone out and, and go. And that is helpful in and running or skiing or, or cycling, I, I assume. Um, it is not good in biathlon where you have to do a very, very um, fine motor task. So 
um, that's, you know, that's the beauty of the sport is you're switching between these two things that are totally different, um, both physically and psychologically. Um, so one of the, one, one thing that I always do to help myself switch between the two disciplines is when I'm training at the venue before the race or maybe I, if I don't have the opportunity to train there, I can look at a course map or something and I can pick out a physical, you know, a geographic marker on the course that's about 150 to 200 meters before the range entrance. And I can, and maybe it's a flagpole or just a little uphill or something. And I decide that that is where I'm going to shift my focus from skiing to shooting. So up until that point, I'm going race pace as if there's no shooting involved in the race at all. You know, if it's a 10K race, I'm going my 10K race pace. Um, and then when I get that, when I pass that geographic that marker, let's say it's a flagpole, I pass this flagpole and that's when I, it's almost, I need the reminder sometimes. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. shooting now. <laughs> and that's when I, I will slow my um, pace down a little bit. Not, it's not like we come to a, it's not like you just suddenly slow way down, but it's more like if you're really pushing at race pace, then you're just going to drop your pace to where you're no longer accumulating more oxygen debt. You're just kind of, you're in a coasting mode. So you're yeah. fast, but coasting, we'll say. Um, and this is only, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds before the range. So um, I, that's when I start to really try to do some deep breaths, get some extra oxygen flowing through my lungs. Um, it's also when I have to really start cueing my mind into what's going on so I mean I often have to actually kind of blink and adjust my eyesight and make sure I'm like can yeah. focus on the target and see down yeah, actually <laughs> see down range yeah. um and you know focus on some tiny dot to, you know go from being sort of in that blackout zoned out <laughs> race mode from skiing to focusing on uh, something it's where I check the wind flags that's a technicality that you have to oh, do wow. absolutely every single time you come in to shoot. I, um, you have to check the wind. So we have wind flags and um, you very often have to adjust your sight based on the wind. So that's a, that's a process, you know, that you have to learn over time how to see the wind and what it means for how to adjust your sight. Um, then you have to go to the right shooting point. Our ranges have 30 shooting points and depending on the race format, you may be filing in if you're in a pack with a group of people, or if it's an individual start race, you may need to go to a certain point. Um, so depending on the format, you got to keep track of that. Go to your correct point, and then you have you know 30 seconds to do your shooting process and shoot on the right target, <laughs> which is also very important. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and then and then you leave, and you then you switch right back from um, shooting back into skiing and. Um, just for your listeners who may not know how it works, we shoot on, when we come into our shooting lane or point, it's sometimes called, like I said, there's 30 of them. So 30 athletes can shoot at one time. Um, each person has their own target and actually it's a set of targets. We shoot at five targets. So five black circles um, and you have five bullets. So when you arrive at your shooting mat, you load your five bullets and then um, for each miss, 
you have. So those are the targets that don't turn white. They stay black because you've missed them. For all the black targets that are left, you have to see a penalty loop per miss. So let's say I miss two. Um, you know, I hit three, I miss two. That means I have to ski two penalty loops. And the penalty loop is a 150 meter little circle that's in usually right in the stadium. Um, and it takes about 25 seconds. And so if my competitor hits all of her targets, but I miss two, suddenly I'm 50 seconds behind. Wow. Um, so those really make a big difference. And if you're one of the, the fastest skiers in the world and you shoot fast, you know, you may be able to make up one penalty loop, but, um, much more than that, it's really tough. So that's, wow. that's kind of how that works. I, I touched on a lot of things crazy. there. Did you have any follow-up questions? No, yeah. Um, so the only thing that I can kind of think of that would apply in cycling in this might sound a little weird. Um, and so like mountain biking a little bit, it's kind of like when you're going into a really technical feature, uh, it can be kind of like that where you need to collect yourself, you need to focus and mm -hmm. um, in a way you know it's coming. Um, if it's a laugh circuit, it's even more so. Um, but more on the roadside, I mean, there's a little bit within time trialing, but honestly, like crashing is the one thing I can kind of think of. Um, when you, where time kind of slows down, you have a lot of thoughts taking place during that one moment. Yeah. And it's amazing how many thoughts you can have when you're, when it's like a 10 second pile up. Um, so I'm curious, I guess, with that in mind, do you, throughout your race, like, are you able to think almost more during your shooting time? Or like, do you have more memories that you can recall? Because I have these crashes that will always be in my mind oh, where I can yeah. even think about what I was thinking about during that moment. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, like, that's this... a, I think it's a really great question. Um, and it definitely touches on something that I think all biathletes and definitely, um, competition shooters work on, which sort of these days has the buzz term mindfulness. Um, hmm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know if my my capacity or to think or my memories are stronger. I I, I don't. I'm not sure. I think if I'm doing a good job, mm -hmm. um, probably it's fairly even throughout. Yeah. I, I've definitely had times where I don't even remember what I did on the shooting range, and usually usually <laughs> those were bad. Oh no. Okay. Um. <laughs> but, <laughs> um but, but then again, sometimes you're really in the zone, you know, and you're not, yeah. and, and people use, I don't, I don't know what that really means is going on in your brain, but sometimes yeah. you're not really going step by step and, and that works perfectly. So, um, I, so that we're, but regarding mindfulness, I think, uh, for shooting, I've definitely trained a lot to, um, basically if not control, you can't really necessarily control your thoughts, but just be aware of them. So, and prepare for them. So one of the sort of classic biathlon things that happens is that you, um, let's say you, you are, you're on, you've hit your first four targets and if you hit your last one, you win the gold medal. Wow. Okay. 
you're at the Olympics. In fact, yeah. this is a, let's say it's a 20 shot race. So sometimes we shoot four times. We stop to shoot four times and you know, it's five bullets per time. So sometimes it's 20 shots. That's our longest race. Let's say you've hit 19 and you win the gold. You're, you know you're gonna win the gold medal if you hit that 20th one. Um, you can just imagine the kinds of thoughts that you might have <laughs> in that situation. Like, oh my God, if I hit this, I'm gonna win a gold medal or I, I better not miss, or like, what if the person next to me is hitting them? Is everyone in the world watching me? Am I going to lose? Am I going to win? I really want to hit it. All of those thoughts. Um, yeah. So that's totally natural. Every biathlete has them. Um, and I've, I think we all have to practice techniques for what do you do when you have those thoughts. It's not, you know, we're not training to make sure we don't have them. That's not possible. You're going to have them. You're going to have those thoughts. So it's more about training for what can you do when you do have them. And for me, um, I, have a, I have a pretty busy mind, I'll say. I'm not one of these people who can just sort of clear everything out and, you know, be in a zen, moment of zen that doesn't i'm not very good at that but yeah. i do have a remarkable capacity to focus on stuff if i choose to focus on it so for me it's filling that those when i have those kind of thoughts and core questions or desires which are like totally not helpful for actually hitting the target i need to say oh yeah i'm having this really useless thought now I need to think about something useful and I'm focused on that. And that might be do a good trigger squeeze, um, you know, feel the weight of the rifle in your left hand on your hip bone, um, you know, exhale gently, <laughs> whatever, <Yeah. laughs> those kinds of things. Um, if I guess if you've never shot before, maybe I could compare it to putting. I think most people have played mini golf, um, at least if not regular golf. And you know, it's like, okay, if I sink this putt, I'm going to win and you might get stressed and you're thinking about this kind of thing. But what really helps is lining up your shot, you know, and making sure your grip is right on the putter. And, and so shifting from the sort of emotional um, thoughts to your shooting process and what's actually going to help you have the best chance for a hit. Um, so it's like a, a almost like a distraction in a way, <laughs> yeah. but also a focus too. Like it's it yeah. kind of allows you to zone in on what you need to see um, and forget the rest. If that's right. Yeah, that's what I have to do. I think I think some people are more successful in just like pushing those other useless thoughts aside. But I Things don't. Out, yeah. For me, in order to, I, I don't. I'm not very good at like clearing my mind totally. Yeah. But what's more helpful for me is. Um, having making sure I have a plan for what I want to actually focus on and um, especially early on in my days as a biathlete when we would look back at the race and say okay what went well what did not go well it was so easy to say well I missed eight out of ten targets that was horrible but um, that's, that's not even helpful. What we would do instead is say, okay, my goal was to do a good trigger squeeze for how many of those 10 targets did I do a good trigger squeeze, good trigger squeeze, and really try to evaluate by the process, not the result, because, you know, in biathlon, you might have 
eight out of 10 misses, but maybe all 10 shots were really, really close. You know, you hit two and the other eight were right on the edge and that's an improvement from where it was before. You have, you have to kind of ignore the black and white yeah. win-loss thing and say, okay, what was my goal? What was the process that I did? How well did it work? Um, and that was really hard at the beginning because I was, you know, getting like last place and shooting so badly. Um, but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't help you get better to, to look at that. So, um, yeah, that sort of process focus is something that is totally, was totally new to me coming from, from running or skiing even. Yeah. It's like you have a, a multi result sheet. Um, yeah. some athletes are only excited by their result. And then you guys have literally like, you have your finishing result, then you have a shooting result and you have like a double <laughs> yeah. negative if you choose to see it that way. So mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you were able to find like, all right, this is how I want to improve. And this is actually what I need to focus on and um, super healthy and something I think that many sports can improve from. Yeah, I mean, um, and I did not, it wasn't like I was always successful, you know, in feeling good about it. it but that's, that's what you have to do. And I think um, coming from running or and running and skiing, I would know going into the race, okay, I'm probably faster than this person, but not faster than this person. And then I could say, I could like guess before the race, you know, estimate, where am I going to finish? This would be a good result. This would be a bad result. And it, and it would be like a pretty small window, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, maybe I'm better than her, but not as good as her, you know, with biathlon, you might win or get last on any given day. And that goes for everyone. So wow. the ups and downs are just way, 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 way bigger than what I was used to. And if you're, you know, an elite athlete, you're used to winning stuff and getting on the podium and <laughs> you got to be ready for some major upsets <laughs> when you get into biathlon because, you know, you might just, it might be windy for you on the range or you might just, I don't know, lose, you lose your cool on the range and it can go downhill very fast so yeah it's yeah i mean that's like something that really doesn't exist in a lot of endurance sports I mean, right it, most of the time it's pretty consistent you can predict um you know recently there's been some fun stuff within uh women's mountain biking on the cross country side which is mm -hmm. uh, i guess more like nordic skiing in that way but it's and it, that has made it a lot more exciting. But for the most part, yeah, especially in, in the male side of things, it, it's pretty predictable. Um, yeah, so that kind yeah. of, it makes it exciting. Like I said in the beginning, it's it's a really, yeah. it makes it exciting, but it's also, it can be kind of traumatic yeah, when definitely. you're experiencing those ups and downs. And I think the best biathletes, the, the ones who stay in the sport the longest, are the ones who can brush that off and say, oh, yeah, well, you know this is what I did well today and here's how I'm going to improve tomorrow and not let it get to them. You know, I yeah. think for the people who like I have, I've struggled with that. It's been really hard. Um, and I think I get better every year at sort of letting those things, um, roll off my back. But, um, it's so important. I mean, it's, I've I had a my I have a great sports psychologist. So if I'm oh, saying great. anything good, it's all coming from him. Um, his okay. name is Sean McCann. He is uh, he works at the U.S. 
Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and he works with our team um, through that. And um, he would always say to me, you know, Claire, are you still dwelling on that race? That's bad work. Like, you want to get better, right? And you're, you work hard. Well, that's bad work. Like, stop doing bad work. <laughs> so that, I thought, was helpful like for me. Like, yeah, you, it's like just that. not helpful at all. Stop doing that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It's a bit, it also takes, um, I guess as a coach, I see my athletes and talk to my athletes all the time about, um, this is what happened in the race and they're dwelling on it. And then, but their ability for whatever reason, our ability to rationalize or dissect our own outcome or our own event or our own result is very difficult. Like our emotions get in the way and that causes us to just like freeze in a way. When if you turn, you have that athlete turn to their friend and uh, see that friend's race, it can, they can do a great job dissecting that person's race. It's very interesting on that, on that front. Yeah, that's true. And I think, I'm sure I do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think it's just something you have to work on over time to yeah, be able to yeah. really um, to take what you can learn and move on. And I guess the most, some of the most helpful comments I've had from coaches have just been question, a question, what did you learn? That's it. What did you learn? Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. I try and get that quite often out of my athletes and it mm -hmm. sometimes works and sometimes yeah. doesn't. Um, but you know, um, all right. So before we move on, on the shooting side, I would like to ask what is special about the, um, about your rifle that with, that you compete with? Um, so for people who know something about rifles, it's a 22 long rifle. Um, for people who don't know anything about rifles, that's what like boy scouts or people at summer camp might have shot. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, it's a, it's a very simple, um, small bore rifle. That means the, the size of the barrel is small and the bullet is small. Um, okay. the bullet is about the diameter of your pinky or smaller, um, probably smaller. And, um, what's special about it? Well, it's on a backpack. So that's what makes it different from like a rifle that someone in scouts might have used. Um, it's basically, you know, has straps on it so you can wear it like a backpack. Um, and it's totally customizable. So, um, if the, the stock is usually what, um, the stock is what you hold. Technically the rifle is the metal part. So like the barrel and the action, which is um, where you load the magazine, which is what holds the bullets. There's yeah, so much yeah. vocabulary. <laughs> so I'm sorry right. if I'm losing your <laughs> listeners who That's don't right. shoot. But <laughs> the, the metal part is usually called the rifle and the stock is what you hold with your hands that, that um, sort of houses the rifle and the stock can be made of wood. Sometimes these days it's kind of carbon fiber or plastic or a combination of those things. And, um, they're really, they're changing all the time, um, with kind of new technologies, but people often are like to stick to the tried and true 
wooden stock. It's like, okay, you know how it's going to behave when it's negative four degrees and you don't have to worry about some new technology failing you. Uh, and you can kind of carve it to fit your hands however you want. Um, so there's a lot of custom wooden stocks. Um, but it's, it's essentially your basic 22 long rifle. Most of them are made by a German company called Anschutz. What's the, do you happen to know the weight that they usually tend to be around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a minimum rate, weight requirement, which huh, is okay. uh, 3.5 kilograms, which okay. I think is 8-ish pounds, 7.5 pounds, something like that. Um, wow. So that's the minimum, and so people often kind of try to get close to that minimum because, you know, you're right. carrying it on your back. But a heavier rifle tends to be more stable. So you, you are kind of weighing those, uh, you're balancing those factors. Um, and so not everyone's rifle is exactly 3.5 kilograms. Did it take you a little while to get used to having that on your back when you first started? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just remember going, you know, I was finishing my first biathlon race ever, and I was in the, you know, the last 100 meters or whatever where I would do a finishing sprint, and I remember trying to do a finishing sprint and thinking, this is just not possible for my quads, <laughs> you know, I can't, or like my whole body, I just, I wasn't used to maneuvering with that backpack on and the extra weight and I'm much more used to it now. Um, but when I, when I do take it off and do a regular ski race or just a workout, it does feel great. A weird. Um, oh, okay. Feels right. great. Oh yeah. Good. Like, All the right. weight has been lifted, but, but, um, one thing, this is kind of a side note, but one thing that I think is really cool about Bathon is, um, and, you know, I'm specifically talking about the women's side here. I'm not, I don't, right. I haven't really looked too much into the men's side on this um, particular way. But um, because we're all carrying around this rifle and it's kind of heavy, it does mean you need to have some muscle on your body. And where so many endurance sports um, really encourage women to, lose a ton of weight and yeah, not have that maybe yeah. more than is healthy um you know like running certainly that is a you know your weight is like a direct factor in your performance you're moving your body around and and cross-country skiing too um but in biathlon you you you're not only moving your body you know you have to carry this weight and what I've seen is that it really enables women of all different body shapes to be successful. Like I am tall and skinny and I can, you know, I, that has pros and cons in biathlon, but I can be successful in biathlon. You can be like short and stocky. You can be big and powerful. Um, so there's just, I've, I don't think I've ever seen another sport where there's so much variation in, in, the different kinds of bodies that are successful. And I, I think that that's a really cool thing about my sport. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Cycling is not that, <laughs> um, you get into a little bit of that on the mountain bike side just yeah. to have that diversity. So you mentioned, um, I love that side, but w do you train at all for that? Like, do you do strength training with the concept of being able to carry something or have the, uh, muscle um, to support that? I mean, I guess, 
I definitely do. You know, I'm focusing on hypertrophy, growing my muscles because I'm a small person. That's my, like, it's my strength is my weakness. <laughs> so I definitely am working on that. Um, it's, I guess I wouldn't say that we cater our strength plan specifically to carrying the rifle. It's more like just looking at skiing general. in general. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that maybe relative to cross-country skiers, we need more, like a little bit more strength um, to, or, and it's just different, but to, to carry the rifle. And I don't know if people adjust their plans based on that, but. Okay. You certainly can't get by just being skinny. Like, it's not going to work. You need right. to be strong. And I think that's cool because it just promotes a healthier athlete. Yeah, a healthier life, too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, agreed. Um, all right, so then going to the skiing front, um, I guess let's start with, uh, you kind of mentioned different body types, which kind of makes me think in this way, but what are the different types of uh biathlon events because there's different um categories right or different biathlon events yeah um there are a bunch um but i guess the most common one is called the sprint um but don't be deceived it's not a really short sprint it takes about 20 minutes okay. um <laughs> it's seven and a half k for the women and 10k for the men um wow. the idea between the distances being different is that it, um the total time of the race is, is should be about the same because men ski faster than women so um, even though they're skiing a little bit longer the total race time is about equal um, and in the sprint we shoot twice so you shoot once prone and once standing and you you know on each shooting bout you sh you ski your penalty loops for your misses um, and you, in every biathlon race, you start with skiing and you finish with skiing. So the sprint goes ski, shoot, ski, shoot, ski, and then finish. Um, so you're always racing to the finish line. You're not, you know, shooting your last shot and then just finishing. Um, so the sprint is the most common one we do. Um, very often the sprint is followed up by what's called a pursuit the following day. And the pursuit is a four-stage race, meaning you shoot four times, prone, prone, standing, standing is the order of the shooting stages and what's fun about the pursuit is that you start in your finishing order from the previous day's sprint so let's say I win the race and my teammate is second by three seconds in the pursuit I start and then three seconds later she starts so basically if you win the sprint you have a um, head start for the pursuit um, but it is very often the case case that all um all the starters in the pursuit are within about two minutes so um the pursuit is a 60 person race so the top 60 finishers wow. from a sprint we usually have about 100 competitors in our world cups so 100 people do the sprint the top 60 do the pursuit and all 60 of them will start in about two minutes usually um and so what it looks like when you come into the range is that you know, whoever's in first place comes in and they go to the first shooting lane and then everyone else files in to point 30. And then by the, if you're in 31st place, you go to point one and the f person who was in first place will have already left. And that timing always works out. You're never like waiting for your shooting position. So it's, it's there's a kind of chaos on the range. It's fun to watch, yeah. fun to do. And then 
you know, tons of people in the penalty loop, but hopefully a lot of people just starting back out on course as well. That's a fun event, one of my favorites. Um, is uh, Are you starting at the same time as some other competitors then? Very often you are. So usually we start, our starting area looks, is set up um, sort of as you, in, with like four or five lanes. So if they're up, up to four people can start at once um, in the same second. And you're, you're sort of, you're standing there and you're there, you're watching a clock and you know when the clock says zero the first place person goes and um, let's say the second place finisher from the sprint was three seconds back when the clock says three that person goes but you may have like a whole bunch of people starting right around you yes wow cool <laughs> that's a fun event um the mass start is probably my favorite event. That's just 30 people all starting together. And it's limited to 30 because the range only has 30 places. So you can only have 30 people in a mass start. Um, that's a fun event. And it's often taken from the World Cup overall ranking. So it's usually sort of a premier event with only the top, top athletes. Um, our... The original biathlon format, um, we call it the individual nowadays. Um, it's based off what biathlon sort of used to be. Um, that's also a four-stage race, and it's our longest race. It's 20K for men and 15 for women, and that takes, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. And um, what's unique about the individual is that instead of a penalty loop permit, you just get a one-minute time penalty. Oh, dang. So that's a lot of time penalty um, because the penalty loop only takes about 25 seconds. So a one-minute time penalty is bad news. Wow. Um, so it's really shoot-heavy then. It's really, yeah. It, it, but it's also the longest race. So you, if mm. you're a skier, you do have more time to make up time. But... But uh, really, it is the shooter's race. Um, and I'll just take a moment here to brag. <laughs> this year, I really worked hard on my shooting. And for the first time in my career, I shot 20 for 20. And it was Damn. happened to be in an individual. So that oh, ended awesome. up being a great result for me. Um, I had never shot 20 for 20 before. So to do it in the individual was really exciting. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no penalty minutes for me in that that day, but um, you know, that's like I said, not not an everyday thing. That was a big time career goal of mine, so I'm glad I finally did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so when you're, let's say you're showing up to an event, mm -hmm. um, what is your process of basically either you know choosing skis choosing wax like what is your process of knowing what the right setup is per the conditions and the okay. course yeah um well before i say that before i answer that i should just say we also do a bunch of relays and i just forgot to mention that oh sorry we the formats, oh cool but, yeah. so that's like a team team format yeah that's we super do cool. um we do men's relays we do women's relays and we also do mixed relays which are really fun that's awesome yeah huh. um and exciting um, so when I get to the event, well, um, at the, at the world cup and an Olympic level in biathlon, pretty much, uh, no athletes are, are waxing their own skis. We all have what we call wax technicians, um, 
and you know most teams have multiple wax technicians who are responsible for preparing our skis um, so pretty much no athletes are doing that work themselves but most athletes do participate in ski testing um, so that might mean you you know an hour before your race or so you go out and ski a little bit usually with your wax tech and you kind of compare a couple different skis and maybe discuss it and pick one for the race um, that's a pretty standard uh, World Cup level um, procedure definitely at you know sort of uh, you know people's races like citizens races um, kids races probably your coach and your you yourself are working on waxing your own skis that's a given you're not going to employ a wax tech um, so I did a lot of my own ski waxing you know up until joining the national team but now I just leave it to my <laughs> wax techs nice. um, but they let's say we arrive at an event on a Monday and our first race is Thursday they are out there skiing many hours a day already on Monday Tuesday Wednesday um, sort of checking the conditions and trying to pare it down from you know maybe we have like 12 pairs of skis and trying to pick the best one um, wow. uh, biathlon is all skate technique so I don't know how familiar people are with cross-country skiing but there's two different styles um, and, and in pure cross-country skiing races um, there are, or cross country skiers compete in both techniques, but biathletes only compete in skating. So there's classic, which looks more like running, and skating, which is more like skating. Um, biathlon's all skating. So you're just, in skating, you're only worried about glide wax. In classic skiing, which looks like running, you're actually, you actually put a sticky wax right under your foot because you have to be able to push off your foot onto your other foot. So you need the part right under your foot to be sticky and the part on the toe and the tail of the ski to be fast. Um, so that, waxing for classic skiing is a next level complication, but in biathlon where it's skate skiing, you only need what we call glide wax. Um, but waxing is only one part of what the wax techs are doing. They're also, like I said, choosing the skis. They're also designing and applying structure to the skis. So sometimes that sometimes that means applying structure i mean always they apply a day of structure and that um imagine you know this these are sort of crude <laughs> examples that i'm giving but of course um if it's really wet you might you you use um this sort of patterned block and you push down on the ski and it adds let's say some um sort of grooves and sort of microscopic grooves into the bottom of the ski that help transport water um, cool. over the base of the <laughs> ski. So the, the, it's very crude. I, I hope my wax tech never listens to this. <laughs> um, he's going to be like, this is what you thought I was doing there. Um, but uh, so that, that would be, you know, like a hand structure application. Um, the skis themselves have, structure built into the base so if you buy skis at a store you know if any person goes into a ski shop and buys cross-country skis they're going to have a 
what we would call a universal grind on the bottom of the ski that would be pretty good, pretty good in every condition. What we have is these d different grinds, which are sort of this microscopic structure in the bottom of the ski, the base of the ski, and they would be, you know, fantastic when it's zero degrees, but probably horrible if it's 20 degrees. Um, so we've specialized our ski bases. So instead of being universally like, okay, in every condition, we have a ski base that's excellent in the cold or excellent in the wet or the warm or the dry or the man-made snow, the old natural snow, etc. Um, so you, you've got different pairs of skis, um, with different base grinds, you have wax, you have hand structure, and then the, f just the flex of the ski matters too. So a ski is actually not flat. It has a bit of a camber, so it's higher right under the foot than on the tip and the tail. So you flatten it out when you step, stand on it. It gives it a bit of springiness. If it were just flat, um... I don't know, you wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't be springy when you push off of it, but the fact that it has a bit of a camber gives you some rebound when you push off of it against the snow, and sometimes you want a stiffer ski or a softer ski, depending on whether the snow is stiff or soft, so there's a, there's a lot, there's really so many dimensions. Yeah, it um, sounds like it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I mean, the layers of, and layers of wax is just <laughs> unbelievable. But we actually, we're, there's a new law um, going into place in July in Europe that bans all use of fluorocarbons, which are a type of wax that's super repellent to water that pretty much all race ski waxes use. Um, and so this wow. will be a huge, huge, huge year for cross-country skiing, downhill skiing. I mean, you, the people watching won't notice, but the people competing definitely will. So we're going to, it's going to be very different that all these, this whole class of waxes that we've relied on for years and years will be banned. And so we've got to come up with some other ways to make our skis fast. Wow. That, I'm going to imagine that would totally change. Uh, what you're used to or how your yeah. form is or, you know, what, how you respond. Wow. I think so. I don't know what the cycling equivalent would be, but like getting new way slower tires, maybe. I mean, it really makes yeah. a difference it, on yeah. the speed of the ski. So I'm thinking I need to work even more on my strength because it's not going to be, my skis aren't going to be as free gliding over the snow. So yeah, you have to we'll work see. harder. Yeah. <laughs> Basically it's yeah. going to be even harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I do think it is kind of like racing in the rain and having tires that have some sort of grip in the wet versus tires that are just not and just are gloss and will be worthless to you yeah um, i guess yeah. different consequences i suppose but um yeah. okay yeah. diving into more on the training side again and we've already covered a good bit of this which i'm stoked on but i did want to touch a little bit on uh summer training then how do you um, kind of like the more the concept of roller skiing and, and stuff like that, but what do you do in the summer and how, what is your, uh, I guess, standardized like periodiz periodization look like throughout the year as far as like, all right, this is my off season. This is when I start summer training and, and yeah, how do you, how do you do that? Um, so we usually end our competition season in the end of March with, you know, the end of winter. And so April is the off season for 
cross-country skiers and biathletes. This, what I'm saying, really goes for both cross-country skiers and biathletes. Um, so then we pretty much all start training around May 1st. That's the typical new start to the new year for us. Um, we do a lot of easy, uh, long training. So what we would call high volume, low intensity mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. those first couple months, May especially. Um, in, I don't know, then you just kind of build from there, I guess. So I think, yeah, you try to lay down the, the foundations in the early months and then you're building, you know, increasing intensity and decreasing volume all the way through um, October, November, and then your season starts. Wow. And then how long is your guys' season? It's a very long season. Um, it starts in the end of November and it goes till the end of March. Wow. And in biathlon, we usually race three, well, I'll say two to four times per week for three weeks in a row. And then we have a week off and then we do that same thing and we repeat that three and a half times. So there's like 40 races. <laughs> um, Dang. And that's in nine different countries over the course of four months basically is that primarily in europe or where it's primarily in europe on? i'm describing the world cup um okay that's what's that's the level i have been competing on for the last several years um our world cup is predominantly in europe but we occasionally have some north american races or races in asia um last year was all in europe this year we have a race scheduled for Beijing, the Olympic venue, but we'll see if we can, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. And, but in the U S there's, um, there are races in the U S but they're not definitely not as many. Um, but a person training for Bathon in the U S would also start to race in December and could race December through March. Okay. Hmm. All right. That's an, yeah, it's a little bit of a different, calendar spacing so um yeah when do you include do you ever do any sort of like roller skiing biathlon oh yeah is that is that a thing as well within yep yeah training? so um i mean yeah we start that basically uh, probably roller skiing is the thing we do most for training hmm. but we right. do a lot of different kinds of training um running biking weight room strength, um, roller skiing, you know, we can do skate roller skiing and classic roller skiing, road cycling, mountain biking, hiking, running, um, you know, people get out on the water and paddle. We're really lucky that we can do a lot of different activities, um, all year round that sort of help us stay interested and stay hopefully uninjured <laughs> yeah. um, by avoiding some kind of multi-use, multi, um, sorry, overuse things. But of course, we still get a lot of overuse injuries. But um, roller skiing is the thing we do the most. And so I've already started roller skiing and um, and shooting. And I, I haven't yet combined them, but that will come definitely soon. Cool. And we had, we do roller ski biathlon races as well. And there's, I mean, there's even a world championships no for way. summer biathlon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Man, do you see similar competitors doing both or is it the same competitors doing both? It's all the same competitors. Um, 
as of now, I don't know anybody that just does summer and not winter. Um, but it is something that I know the International Biathlon Union is looking into expanding more um, in order to reach, you know, to bring biathlon to more people and more um, countries and places where there isn't snow and having um, that kind of street biathlon be the be the main focus for hmm. some people in the future maybe um so we'll see but for now um it's really used as a mechanism for training rather than okay. as its own sport okay a little bit of a side question but i'm just kind of curious has anyone in biathlon gone and just competed on the shooting front um we so there's um, a set of twins, Lanny and Tracy Barnes, who competed in a bunch of Olympic games, um, starting, I think, in Torino, but for sure Torino, Vancouver, and Sochi, at least one of them was present on the biathlon team. And they, I, as far as I know, they came into biathlon from a shooting background. And I know that they continue to work in shooting as coaches and consultants. I think they work with some law enforcement, doing training for, um, I, I don't know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't exactly speculate, but I, th something like that. Um, That's cool. Yeah, and so to my knowledge though, they're really the only athletes that um, have kind of come more from a shooting background. Everybody else has either started in biathlon or started in skiing and, um, just done baffling. We, we've had a couple like really good shooters on our team who said, oh, maybe I should just do shooting. But I don't think anyone has done it just yet. It is, it's, I mean, the accuracy that our sport requires is nothing compared to what um, comp competition shooting requires. I mean, I told you for standing that our target is the size of a CD. Um, I mean, on a, if you, if you shoot if you imagine a scoring target, meaning, you know, those rings that have numbers on it, so like where the bullseye is a 10, and you go a little bit out and it's a 9, the CD, the CD ring is the 4 ring, okay? So if we hit a 4 or better, that's a hit. And for competition shooting, when they shoot in the standing position, they're just hitting all 10s. <laughs> so <laughs> uh. it's really, um, certainly we have the base sort of skills and understanding of the sport but it's very very different and it's a whole another level of, of accuracy and precision still yeah yeah mm -hmm. i mean but they're not coming into the target having done other things as well yeah but, i think yeah. if you ask a lot of biathletes would tell you that they're not sure they do any better when they're standing still <laughs> oh uh, that's amazing yeah uh, yeah i guess <laughs> That's funny. It's what you train um, for, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I guess you never know. Um, well, cool. Um, you know, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you. I know this is, you know, what you live and breathe. Um, so I was just excited to learn from you in general. And I think you brought up some really cool points. Um, but thank you so much for, you know, joining me. Thank you for being on the podcast um, and taking some time out of your day. And it's you're welcome. A, very it's much fun a to introduce Bathon to people who have no idea what biathlon is i mean yeah it's such sport. a cool sport i recommend that you you watch it it is um i mean like i said we do a ton of racing all winter you can watch all of it online um 
and it's actually all on the Olympic channel as well, if you oh, have cool. that. Um, but how can I best direct your listeners to well, I mean, really, honestly, probably they can go to my website. I have information on my own personal website about how to watch biathlon. And um, cool. it's just, it's always on at a good time because it'll be like 3 p.m. in Europe, but it's 9 a.m. on a Saturday. You know, we call it biathlon breakfast in the U.S. And it's just, oh, cool. it's really fun <laughs> to watch. So um, I like that. my website is claire at claireegan. Or my, my website is claireegan.com. Very easy to remember. Perfect. Um, so... Yeah, watch Biathlon. It's fun. Check it out. Awesome. Well, I hope that we get to watch you race soon. That would be awesome. <laughs> I hope um, I get to race soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but either way, thank you again, and um, best of luck, and I will hopefully talk to you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire about the world of Biathlon. I have some good guests lined up, so look for those in the oncoming weeks. If you have any ideas or requests for guests or topics to feature, reach out to us on Instagram at TrainingEdgePod. Please leave us a rating and review and just in general spread the word if you have enjoyed these conversations. All right, until next week, keep finding your edge.